Hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. Here's a little rant over a big issue. I was talking to a woman in her 20s who told me that while she was at work the other day, a man of about 50 or 60 was telling her, among other things, that she's very attractive. She referred to it as a gross interaction, I'll say. And worse, she told me that it's not unusual for this to happen. Message to that man. What the fuck is wrong with you that you think that's okay? That you somehow think it's a compliment to tell a woman, a much younger woman, a total stranger, that she is attractive. Moreover, she's at work and she can't tell you off because she has to be polite to the tourist. You've now put her on edge and wrecked her day. Is that what you're going for? especially older man to younger woman, but really any man to any woman who is a total stranger. I promise you, it's not a compliment. It's fucking creepy. It's messed up. It invades our space. And we've been taught to just take it because it happens all the goddamn time. And it's like a fucking hostage negotiation to figure out how to respond lest we ignite some crazy reaction. Look, tell your partner she's attractive. She'll probably appreciate it. Anybody else? Shut up. You don't have to voice every thought in your head. Put a bit of work into imagining how your words will actually make someone feel. Here's the key. Lose the sense of entitlement that makes you think you're allowed to say whatever you want to anybody and we should be thankful for it. This is going to be a longer episode because I edited chapter five only to discover that once edited, it was down to only 15 minutes. I've been pushing my luck with these shorter episodes, and I realized that with the change in the story, the change in the writing style, a different world, that sort of thing, it's probably been harder to really connect with the characters and get into it. I find I have, you know, a longer chapter and then a short one and then a longer one. So it's kind of hard to know where to put that shorter one, which is why I've just been leaving them on their own. So chapter five, I probably should have included in last week's episode. Live and learn. So this week, bonus, you get chapter five and chapter six plus an interlude. I like to think of it as time well spent. Now, you may recall, last week, Griffin was asked to make creme brulee, but once she had done so, Phoenix told her he hates it. And all of a sudden, Griffin was holding the knife that had arrived in the mail. Griffin and the Spurious Correlations by Krista Wallace Chapter 5 May 7th was a long day. If the deep breaths helped the trembling, I didn't notice. It may have helped the first set of trembles, but I was being bombarded by a whole new orchestration. 
Rickenbacker walked in, and I thrust my hands behind my back. The last thing I needed was my boss to call the cops on this crazed employee who pulled a knife on his business partner. I took a stab, uh, no pun intended, at a nonchalant expression. His face lit up. Ooh, is that creme brulee? He picked one up and thrust his face into it. I'm so sorry. I thought that's what... Wait a minute. What? He spoke around a mouthful of pudding with untorched sugary topping. I love this stuff, and this, he pointed at it, is particularly good. Our patrons will be very happy. But Phoenix said... I pointed back at the door, then noticed the knife was still in my hand, and scrambled behind my back to get the damn thing put away. Our patrons, Rickenbacker said, are sophisticated. They expect a wide selection of desserts, and creme brulee is... His eyes searched the kitchen for just the right descriptor. One of them. Grateful for the chance to explain myself, I rushed to say, Phoenix was the one who told me to make it, and then he suddenly changed his mind. Rickenbacker darted a sharp look at me. Are you accusing Phoenix of something? He sort of sounded gleeful. I had to be wrong about that. In any event, maybe it was a good time to let it go. No, I jammed the damn knife into my hip pocket. Listen, I'd better get moving. I indicated the rainbow of puddings with a vague wave. He nodded, licking out his dish, and handed it to me, then left. Matteo walked in. I have six orders for creme brulee. I didn't know we had it on the menu. I guess it's a special or something, I replied, uncertain what to do with Rickenbacker's dish. I made it this afternoon. Admiration poured out of his eyes. Wow, you're a really amazing person. If anything could obliterate Phoenix's loathsome, contradictory behavior, well, a comment like that from this man did it. That gaze of his was like an infrared light for keeping food warm, and I couldn't help but react accordingly. I also couldn't meet it. I smiled, probably like an idiot. I'll get torching six of them for you. He continued to watch me while I set aside six of the ramekins. I struggled not to wither under his scrutiny, but rather to take his admiration as a vote of confidence. I'm just not used to anyone paying that kind of attention to me. I'll be back for it, he said, and went back into the dining room. Something weird happened when I aimed the torch at the first dish. I guess you're becoming less and less surprised each time I refer to something weird. But anyway, it did. And if I'm going to tell this story, I want to be accurate. The flame met the sugar, and instead of melting it and making it crumble into that crunchy, sugary topping characteristic of traditional creme brulee... Well, this was already not traditional, given that the table of dessert resembled the wall of paint chips at a paint store. The flame touched the sugar, and the sugar leapt up in the dish, squeezed and twisted itself until it formed a sculpture of a mermaid on a rock, just like the one in the harbor of Copenhagen. I stared at it, open-mouthed. I instinctively withdrew the torch before it could burn the crap out of the mermaid. What the fuck? I set that one down and picked up the next, tentatively aiming the flame at it. With my nose wrinkled in determination, I went in. This one lifted and stretched and became a dragon's head, complete with colored flame snorting out its mouth. I attacked the next one with more confidence. It was a castle with turrets as perky as meerkats, and a moat. 
Another was a leaping dolphin. Each and every dish of pudding had a crunchy, sugary topping of a unique, dramatic design. What with the wacky colors and the peculiar shapes, I was at the same time puzzled, delighted, and terrified. When Matteo took the tray into the dining room, balanced on his hand and shoulder, he was met with a round of applause. Several more orders from my creation came within the next half hour. I torched each one, and the sculptures got stranger and more impressive, never repeating themselves. Shortly before the end of my shift, a call came from the dining room. One of the servers said her table wanted to applaud the creator of the amazing creme brulee. Blushing, palms sweating, I stepped through the doors into the dining room with its deep red floral carpet and dark wood furniture and approached her table. I smiled as they stood and applauded. My heart beat with a pride I had never experienced before. Then I stopped walking. They weren't looking at me. Phoenix stood before them, bowing and modestly brushing off the applause, kind of as if he didn't deserve it. Furious, I reached behind my back to untie my apron, and my hand brushed against the knife in my hip pocket. Bloody hell! Never had I felt so much like pulling a weapon on somebody. I ignored it and bashed through the swinging doors back into the kitchen. I took off my apron and flung it on the counter and stalked to the other door. I stopped myself, hands clenching and unclenching, and went back to hang my apron up properly where it lived— I hated that something so stupid as an apron would have eaten at me all night, but it would. That sent me pounding through the doors. In my fury, I made a couple of wrong turns in the maze of funky, eye-jarring wallpaper and had to backtrack, but eventually found my way to the rehearsal studio to get my gear. I decided to take my amp home since the place was well-equipped. I shrugged into my jacket. Mateo was nowhere to be seen, probably still waiting tables. Back through the maze again, we'd come in through the parkade entrance, so I wasn't sure where to find the front door, but eventually I found myself back in the dining room. Most of the tables still had patrons, so I kept my head down so as not to draw attention to myself as I snuck past the stage at the end of the room to the front door. I was out on the street, and it was dark, and it was raining, and I was cold, and I was mad, and damn it, somewhere someone was playing Roy Orbison singing Crying. I brushed tears and raindrops off my face and headed south toward Hastings Street, where I felt reasonably sure I would find a bus route. My first day had gone so well. Too bad it had ended so poorly. Something about walking to the bus stop in the rain seemed to help me a bit. Phoenix had told me he was the owner of the restaurant. Was it that much of a surprise for him to take at least some credit for the creations served in his establishment? Even though he'd given me mixed messages about the creme brulee, I conceded that it wasn't too far out of the scope of possibility. At any rate, it was a healthier outlook than the resentment I had hitherto been dwelling on. It was a good thing Matteo was involved in all this. If Phoenix was the only person I had to deal with, I wouldn't last long in this place. By the time I got off the elevator in my apartment, it was 10.30. What a long, bloody day. I was utterly spent. My few snacks had run out long ago, and my weary feet dragged along the carpet. A few stray bits of Jason's stuff still sprinkled the hall outside my door. I went in, locked the deadbolt, and tossed my keys on the stand in the entryway, and stood my guitar cases up in the corner by the closet. I didn't even have the energy to put my jacket on a hanger, but hooked the neck on the closet door handle. I made a quick peanut butter and honey sandwich and a gin and tonic. 
I gave my cell phone an evil eye where it lay so relaxed and undisturbed on the couch. I picked it up. So many notifications. Maybe it had been busier today than I assumed, poor thing. Slumping in the armchair, I punched all the right buttons to access my voicemail. Seven messages? Yikes. Something was digging into my bum. I pulled out the knife just as Jason started screaming at me through the tinny speaker. You fucking bitch! You cow! Who the hell do you think you are after all I've done for you? You get some pretty boy to come and throw me out? Who is he anyway? Pretty boy? Well, he is that. Did you meet at that piece of shit wedding? Did you screw him right away? Jason paused, apparently to think of some more witticisms to throw at me. Well, you must have, for him to want to come home with someone as ugly as you. Jason seemed unaware of his own irony. Well, have a shitty life. Seriously? The thing beeped, introducing Jason again. Hey, Griffin, babe. Seriously? Hey, I miss you already. I... I don't know what to do. I'm, like, totally lost without you. Griff, I I know I messed up. I totally know it, and I'm really sorry. Just, can I come over? Okay, well, call me, babe. Beep. Griffin, came my mother's scolding tone. It's your mother. Duh. If you choose to remember. Are you there? I suppose you're screening your calls. I imagine I'll never see you again since you're so ashamed of what you did on Saturday night. What I did? Well, I'm going to continue to call you and keep you up to date on this little saga you initiated. You'll no doubt be happy to hear that Mrs. Price was in the shop today. She bought a dress for her anniversary dinner and had heard about the incident and has informed me that Helen Deacon was actually there and she said that one of the other ladies at her table actually said that the mother of the bride bought her dress at my shop. This is all your fault, Griffin, if my business suffers as a result of this. Now, see, I hope you're satisfied. I'm going to have to have a glass of sherry. I'm so worked up. Sleep well in your guilt-free, happy world. Bloody hell. It was my fault if the business suffered, but guaranteed if business picked up, I wouldn't get credit for it. Beep! Griff, it's me, Jillian. God, where are you, honey? You don't usually wait this long to call me. Anyway, I just wanted to warn you that Mom's really pissed. She's pissed at the world, no clue why, but I have a feeling you're the scapegoat. Sorry, but I just wanted to warn you. Don't take it personally, okay? She's just, well, just being her. She'll get over it. Anyway, see ya. Call me, okay? My younger sister was forever my dearest friend. She was right. I usually talked to her every day. She sounded a bit down. Mom must be really getting to her. Beep! Griff? A sort of throat-clearing sound. It's me, Calvin as if I wouldn't recognize his voice. I heard music in the background, so I knew he was calling me from work. He worked at a really cool used record store. Lucky him getting to listen to records all day. Sometimes I went there and hung out, and we would take turns closing our eyes and picking an album to listen to. That's how I discovered Jean-Michel Jarre. Calvin went on. Listen, are we going to rehearse on Wednesday night? I mean, it's Tuesday tomorrow, and I kind of thought we should, you know keep things going, get back on that horse, so to speak, so we don't lose momentum. I mean, it's just one gig. It doesn't matter all that much. 
I mean, it matters, yeah, but, I mean, we kept playing, and, well, I think for the short time we played, we sounded pretty damn good. In fact, when you picked up your acoustic and started playing, I was like, wow, you sounded really good, honestly. I was kind of proud. Anyway, I know you were pretty upset. Don't let it get you down too much. The rest of us are still here, and we want to play. Don't let Snifter win. He paused. Don't let Jason win. <clears throat> A throat clearing. Call me, okay? Calvin, the voice of reason in a crazy world. Without him, I would probably be a puddle on the floor somewhere. That was really nice of him. And he was right, too, about everything. Which was probably why my conscience chose this moment to start singing like Jiminy Cricket in my ear. Dang it, it was probably too late to call him now, but I'd for sure call him first thing in the morning. I took a gulp of G&T. Beep! Bloody hell, I never get this many messages. Griffin, if you don't call me back, I don't know what I'll do. Jason was crying this time, or pretending to. I'll probably kill myself. Do you want that on your head? Well, goodbye. The phone rattled, and there was one more tiny sob to make his big finish as dramatic as possible. Nice try, jerk-off. Beep! Hey, Griffin girl. I sat up and adjusted the phone on my ear. I did not want to risk missing a single word spoken by the caramel tone of that voice. I have to tell you, today was one of the best rehearsals I've ever had. One of the best days, in fact. I really enjoy making music with you. You're super talented, and I think the band will go far. I... Well, I can't tell you how glad I am that you joined us. Anyway, I'll see you tomorrow. Good night. How I managed to get up and go to bed after that message, I don't know. I pretty much floated around my apartment. I forgot all about being scolded for my lateness in the morning. I forgot about my mother's berating, and I completely forgot the sting of Phoenix Riesling, or whatever the hell his name was, taking credit for my success. I absolutely did not forget to set my alarm for seven o'clock in the morning. There was no way I wanted to miss a single moment of potential work alongside Mateo. The other thing I forgot about altogether was my intention to phone Calvin first thing in the morning. Chapter 6 May 8th Mateo didn't magically appear to drive me to work on Tuesday. He hadn't told me where he lived, so it was still a wonder to me that he had appeared the day before. I ate some cereal and rushed out the door, one guitar on my back and the others in my hands. I figured my twelve-string would add versatility. And yes, my cell phone made it into my jacket pocket this time, and my lunch went into the pouch in my guitar case. I tried not to bemoan the fact that a ride today would have been even better than a ride yesterday. I caught the bus to the train with all the other rush-hour commuters, a hazard to them with guitar cases pointing in all directions at once, but I did my best not to clock anyone. Several people glared at me on the train for having the nerve to take up more space than they felt I deserved, despite the care I was taking. <laughs> Glad I don't have a double bass, I remarked with a friendly smile. A woman crinkled her nose at me as if I smelled bad. I let it go. 
The plan was to be at Salamander's way ahead of time because I'd have to cut out early to be at the music store by four o'clock for Dominic's lesson. It was rebellious of me, and I felt sort of sick at the thought of it, but I felt less guilty than I would have if I hadn't been cheated out of my creme brulee glory the day before. I wondered what awesome dessert I'd come up with today and kind of looked forward to telling my dad about it. I bet he'd never have imagined one of his daughters, least of all me, would take after him. I lugged my gear off the bus and arrived at the restaurant at 8.30. It was dark and locked up. I felt a little silly. Was the place open just for dinner? When a restaurant is open only in the evening, do people usually arrive this early in the morning? Perhaps not. What did I know? Was the restaurant open for lunch? I couldn't have told you what time Mateo and I had arrived the day before. I had stopped paying attention to anything but him, and you don't have to tell me how high school that sounds. I decided it was evidence of how icky Jason had been. I went around the corner in search of a back door, but all I found was the parkade entrance. I peered in. It was pitch black. But that's how it had been when Mateo and I drove into it. I braced myself and headed down the passageway, carefully sliding one guitar along the wall as a guide. It was like descending into a mine shaft, only darker. I looked behind me and could no longer see the light of day from the entrance. How far had I walked in such a short time? I set my acoustic down and pulled out my cell phone and turned on its torch feature. The bright light was unable to pierce the blackness. I couldn't carry the phone and the guitar, so I left my guitar on the ground and went on a scouting mission, hoping a car wouldn't come along and crush it. As I crept deeper and deeper, the wall became damp, and I heard a drip, drip, which made me think of a cave. It smelled like wet stone, too. I bashed my knee into something sticking out of the ground and almost tripped. I shone the torch closely along the thing I'd bumped into. It was about three feet high and narrow, a sort of cylindrical shape, growing out of the ground. It was rough to the touch, and even the ground no longer felt like concrete, but like stone. Oh, for crying out loud, a stalagmite? In the utter blackness, I reached up above the thing and shone the meager light from my phone on a similar structure hanging from the ceiling, dangling to about four feet above its lower partner. A drip of moisture let go of the stalactite and fell, splashing gently. I am so done with this. I turned, went back and snatched up my guitar, and raced as fast as I could in the freaking dark back to the entrance. When I reached it, I burst through the wall of black into the daylight as if I'd come through a curtain. The place still looked locked up like a prison. I sat on the front step to wait for somebody. By nine, I was still alone and chilly, so I decided to grab a coffee. I had to wander the streets a bit, heaving my guitars the whole way. I had a brief chat with a grizzled fellow sitting on a mangy-looking sleeping bag. He thought I should give him some money. Instead, I bought him some coffee and a muffin and an apple, for which he thanked me, though I then had to convince him I wasn't after his shopping cart of treasures. I found my way back to Salamander's. It was lit up like a Christmas display, and when I hurried inside, several heads attached to bodies sitting at a dining table turned to greet me. Rickenbacker Rose, still in top hat and tailcoat, gave me a bow and said, "'We've been missing you this morning, Miss Trowbridge.' I indicated the front of the restaurant. "'But I got here early. Never mind, off you go. I believe Chef has another delectable item he'd like our master pastry chef to create.'
I didn't bother trying to protest, but soon got lost in the insane back corridor, finally found my destination, put my guitars in the rehearsal studio, and ran back to the kitchen. Chef was making shortbread. He asked me to make millefeuille. What is that? I asked. Chef laughed as if I'd told an Eddie Izzard joke. No, seriously, I have no idea what that is. But Chef's attention was back on other things. Stephen appeared at my side with a book entitled The Origin and Signification of Scottish Surnames. Ah, yes, definitely a book that was sure to help. He plonked it on the work surface, opened it in the middle, and flipped a few pages. On the left was a recipe for dog biscuits. On the right, millefeuille, or Napoleons. I took a deep breath. Yay, my first experience with French puff pastry was bound to be an eventful one. I read through the recipe. It didn't look too complicated, but it sure was going to take a long time. The dough needed to be folded over and over and refrigerated for two hours, folded again and refrigerated for another two hours. That had to happen a total of four times. There weren't enough hours in the day. How in hell could I get it done in time to leave late today, let alone early? I started calculating how long it would take me to get to the music store, teach a lesson, and come back. Could I fit it into one of the two-hour refrigeration periods? My stomach already felt like it had been folded over and over. I took another deep breath, pressed my lips together, and started hauling out ingredients and equipment. There is no way. There is just no way. Had I been able to enter the building when I'd first arrived, I might have stood a better chance. By the time I finished getting stuff out, Stephen had measured out all the dry ingredients, along with the butter, and was already working the dough with his hands. I poured ice water and lemon juice. I bent over the book to check the recipe. When I looked back, Stephen had already begun rolling out the dough. Wow, you're quick. Have you made this before? Stephen shook his head. The music from the radio filtered through into my brain. It was Yakety Sax, the theme from Benny Hill, loud and frenetic. The other kitchen staff still looked like they'd been choreographed. Today was a new routine. It did not help my stress level. Could we change the radio station to hear something calmer? I called out to anyone who would listen. Two people stopped what they were doing and eyed me quizzically. We don't have a radio, the short one said, and the taller one agreed. I pointed to the air. Can't you hear that? Hear what? What do you mean you don't hear it, I asked. It's so loud and all of you are... I stopped as more of my co-workers stared at me and peered at me from behind each other. I decided it would be best if I didn't finish the sentence to point out that they were all moving like the toot-sweet dancers in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Stephen looked sidelong at me from under his longish bangs. I gleaned from this near eye contact that I should not carry on. I shrugged and stopped, but it was, yes, it was weird. Beating the butter in the mixer was next on my list, so that when Stephen had rolled the dough to the right thickness and wrapped it in plastic, I could easily flatten the butter to the correct size. Both went into the fridge. I got busy separating eggs for the cream filling. It had to completely cool before I could assemble the dessert, and I had two hours to kill before it would be time to fold it over and roll it out again. Stephen got the milk onto the stove to heat. It was all going very well, surprisingly well, and I felt confident, like I might even be able to do this. With the pastry cream in the refrigerator to cool, I decided to pop down to the rehearsal studio to see if the guys were ready to go through set one. 
Tension eased from my muscles as I moved farther away from the kitchen and closer to the studio. It was like going on vacation, driving away from the city out to some rural campground, with a bit of thrill about playing music thrown in. The others were all set up and ready to go, and I wondered fleetingly what their other jobs in the restaurant were. But I didn't want to waste good playing time with a discussion about the restaurant, so I plugged in and tuned, and the drummer, I think his name was Bernard, counted us in for the first song. A short time later, Stephen interrupted the rehearsal, which felt a bit like stepping on Lego, to say the dough was ready for folding and rolling. That couldn't be right, but it's supposed to be in there for two hours. We used the fast fridge, Stephen said, which were the first words I had heard him say aloud. Oh, I'd never heard of a fast fridge. I wondered vaguely if my dad had a fast fridge in his catering business. So... The band looked at me with a question in their eyes. I'll be right back. I put my guitar on its stand and jogged with Stephen down the hall to the kitchen. I don't know if I was just getting used to the place or what, but there seemed to be fewer twists and turns in the route. Anyhow, we made it. Stephen had pulled out the dough and the butter, and I followed the instructions on the recipe. I folded the dough around the butter and rolled it, folded it, rolled it, wrapped it up, and put it back in the fridge. There. I had another two hours. The clock on the wall said ten o'clock. Wait a minute, ten o'clock? I hadn't even got into the building until 9.30. How could it be only ten o'clock? I checked my watch. Ten o'clock? My cell phone said the same thing. Mystified, I went back to the rehearsal room. What time is it? I asked. Matteo looked at his watch. Oh, yeah, you have to leave a bit early today, right? Don't worry, it's only ten. Huh. Well... I picked up my guitar warily, a little afraid it might, I don't know, turn into a flamingo or something. I forgot all about it, though, as we played through set two with such a level of perfection I was nearly bursting with the thrill of it. We took a few moments to work out some harmonies in Walk of Life and Rocket Man. Mateo's and my voices blended so well together the overtones made my spine tingle. Wow, that sounds great, you two, the drummer. I think his name was Sean, said. Matteo was smiling sort of shyly at me, and I felt a glow like I'd had a glass of red wine. Music does that. There was a knock on the door, Stephen returning to tell me the fast fridge had chilled the dough to the two-hour point again. I looked at my watch. 10.30. One, I said, how could the dough have chilled for two hours in only half an hour? And two, how is it we just played through a 45-minute set, plus stopping to fix things and arrange harmony parts in only half an hour? Is this place part of some loop in the space-time continuum? <laughs> I chuckled at my humor, though I was afraid I might sound a little hysterical. The guys all looked at me, baffled. Griff, Mateo said in that caramel voice of his, we've been in here for two hours. <laughs> I laughed. You're hilarious. Remember when I came back from the kitchen and asked what time it was and you said it was only ten? Remember that? I looked around for the hidden cameras. My voice was rising with my annoyance. I do not like being made fun of or made to look stupid, and this was pushing my limits. The band shuffled their feet and cast glances around the room. Stephen rocked back and forth in the doorway. Maybe they knew where the hidden cameras were. I was about ready to scream at somebody. Matteo came over to me and put his hands on my upper arms and gazed down at me with his dreamy blue eyes. 
You must have had a late night or something. It was shortly after eight when you asked what time it was. When Matteo touched me and looked at me like that, he could tell me we were in a castle floating through the air and I'd believe him. I shivered and blushed, damn it, both because I felt a bit silly over my mistake and also because, God, I was in love with him. <laughs> okay, well, thanks for your patience, you guys. I'll just go deal with this dough thing and be right back. I ducked under my guitar strap. Matteo brushed my hair with his fingertips and said, You're going to knock this one out of the park again, babe. Babe? He called me babe. I could hardly breathe. How my legs of jelly carried me to the kitchen, I am not sure, but I got there, folded and rolled the pastry again, and returned. The rest of the rehearsal was terrific, especially the part where we worked on the electrifying five-part harmony in Love and Touch and Squeezin'. The keyboard player, was it Quentin? Was brilliant on those bluesy lines. I sang lead, and when we got to the na-na bit, the guys joined in one at a time, adding another layer of sound with each repeat of the phrase. It sounded so glorious, I signaled to sing through the section a couple of times with all five voices before we finally sang the last few bars a cappella. The sound ended abruptly, and the vibrations hovered in the space for what seemed like ages, bouncing off the walls and ceiling. Then there were hoots and cheers from everyone, and we grinned at each other like clowns, and Matteo hugged me carefully so we didn't smash guitars, and I didn't think I had ever been so happy. Tears filled my eyes, and I laughed with glee and felt as high as the space station. When Stephen showed up, I didn't even resent him, though it was tough to tear myself away. I was on top of the world, and after two more sets of half-hour, two-hour blocks, my pastry was ready to be turned into a gigantic sheet of millefeuille. I rolled it onto parchment paper, baked it, cut it, and Stephen helped me assemble it into three layers of pastry with two layers of cream in between. Then it could chill until it was time to be served." It was 2.30, if time was to be believed on this day, nearly time for me to catch the bus if I was to be at the music store for a four o'clock lesson. I spoke in a low voice to my invaluable assistant. Stephen, can I put you in charge of cutting this into serving sizes? I asked. I have to leave early today. The swinging doors banged open and Phoenix walked in, dressed like a cross between Robin Hood and a leopard. I happened just then to notice that the music through the radio changed to tubular bells, also known as the theme from The Exorcist. "'What did you just say?' He yelled it quietly, if you can imagine what that sounds like. He was, apparently, my boss, but yesterday he had taken credit for the dessert I had made, which he had previously criticized me for. Today I was determined to not be intimidated by him. Besides, I was still riding the wave of an amazing rehearsal. My determination did not, however, neutralize the tremolo effect in my voice. I have to help a friend by teaching his guitar students because he broke his hand. It just came up and he really needs my... You have a commitment to salamanders. Maintaining my composure admirably, I pulled my voice into a deliberate, calm state, though my hands were shoved in my pockets to hide their shaking. I know, and I have already finished what I needed to do for Salamanders today. Not only have I rehearsed with the band, but I made the dessert chef ask. Phoenix put his hands on his hips like a petulant eight-year-old. Oh, yes, and what is this creation you've produced? Millefeuille, I said. Napoleons, with puff pastry and everything.
He looked doubtful. Show me. Wondering why he had to be such an ass and wishing Rickenbacker were my immediate supervisor, I opened the fridge door to reveal my masterpiece. What is that? Phoenix didn't look angry. He looked shocked. I followed his gaze into the fridge, where previously the sheets of pastry had taken up three individual shelves of the industrial-sized refrigerator. They now took up the entire appliance. The pastries were now models of jagged mountains with layer upon layer of colors depicting the way the Earth's surface had been formed by massive earthquakes at the dawn of time. The layers of pastry cream Stephen and I had so painstakingly spread were no longer horizontal, but thrust up into accurate representations of the layers of sediment that settled throughout evolutionary history. I had a strange notion that if I were to bite into it, I would find fossils of ancient shellfish and bugs. Phoenix's voice was breathless with awe. Stephen, these are amazing. Stephen? My jaw, which had dropped to my chest, snapped shut. Sure, he helped, but... I looked around. Stephen was nowhere to be seen. Can we get these out on the counter and take photos for our poster board out front, Stephen? Uh, my name's Griffin. Remember we went through this yesterday? Yeah, whatever. Why are you here again? Asshole, I thought. Rickenbacker hired me to be in the band and to make dessert, even though... So why aren't you? What? Iyer was about to get the better of me. It caused me to say things I wouldn't otherwise say. I am. I just finished a rehearsal with the band and I made the pastry in between. Why aren't you getting it out of the fridge like I asked you? I stared for a moment. Was he for real? My mouth opened and then closed again. I stepped toward the fridge, but something lumpy was pressing into my ankle. My sock, maybe. I reached down to adjust it. Instead, the leather sheath and the knife found themselves in my hand again. I half dropped, half flung them to the floor and kicked them under the counter. My hands were shaking when I straightened up to pull out the pastry mountains. I nearly let the first tray slide to the floor as I turned from the fridge to the work surface. Phoenix, the moron, kept getting in my way and didn't offer to help. The bloody trays were enormous, and puff pastry was, today at least, as heavy as devil's food cake. Finally, I had all eight trays. How did three trays become eight, and how had they all fit in the fridge? Spread out on the huge work table. Who normally takes the photos, I asked. I do. A large camera suddenly appeared in his hand, one of those old-fashioned ones with an accordion for a lens. How about you stand behind the table and be in the photo, too? Well, this was a welcome change from yesterday, although I was getting a little anxious to catch my bus. I positioned myself and made myself smile as he set up the shot. Without warning, he pulled out a hose from exactly nowhere and squeezed the nozzle, sending a high-powered jet of water right through all the mountains of pastry, spraying it all onto me. I shrieked and tried to both duck and save the dessert. In the same moment, the flash went pop and the shutter made a loud click. He continued to spray the milfeuilles and me, all the while squealing with maniacal laughter. When the hose finally stopped, I found myself on my knees on the table amongst the pastry and cream. I was covered in it. In my right hand, I was brandishing the knife, the very sharp point aimed for Phoenix Rising's left eye. A terrible growl issued from my throat. The other kitchen staff had frozen still, staring at the wall away from me. Phoenix, on the other hand, was smirking. "'What's that you've got there?' he asked, as if it wasn't obvious." 
My pulse pounded in my throat and I struggled to regain control of my breathing. Nothing! My whole body shook as I hastily shoved the knife into the mess of puff pastry. What the bloody hell did you do that for? I crawled off the table. I was covered in flaky, creamy muck and very close to tears. Wet pastry and cream dripped from my hair. I had to blink it out of my eyes. It stuck my shirt to my torso and my underpants felt like I'd peed myself. I unconsciously licked the back of my hand. The stuff was delicious. He snorted. You should have seen your face. He fucking well giggled and walked out of the kitchen. Was this his idea of initiation? A hazing ritual? What was the best way to take it? I sure as hell didn't feel like laughing. I'm not doing anything about this! I screamed after him, indicating the mess of my culinary efforts. A dollop of cream dropped off my hair onto my shoulder. I whipped a towel off a hanger and wiped my face and hair, clawing back tears of fury. What on earth did this psycho have against me? The towel saturated, I looked in every cupboard in the kitchen for more. Where are the towels? I asked the room at large. The staff turned to me as if it made no sense at all that I should need a towel. In the laundry! They spoke in unison like a Greek chorus. Every single towel this restaurant owns is in the laundry? What kind of insane place was this? Oh, never mind, I have to go! I quaked with anger as I pushed the door into the back hallway. Part of me hoped I would run into Mateo so I could tell him how horrible Phoenix had treated me, again. The other part figured just seeing Mateo would make me bawl my eyes out. The maze of the back hall with its staggeringly garish diamond patterns did nothing to improve my mood, but I finally slopped my way to the rehearsal room. Nobody was there. Where had they all gone off to? Working in the restaurant, I supposed. Whatever. It was just as well Mateo wasn't there as I grabbed my guitar. But looking around that terrific, well-equipped rehearsal space was as good as a shower and a nap. I imagined I could still hear the reverberations of those five-part na-nas, which effectively smoothed the peaks and valleys of my rattled emotions. I was more at home in this room than I was, well, at home. The drum kit, the guitars on stands with the steel pickups reflecting the mood lighting, the microphone stands, one of which was mine. It's all about the music, I insisted aloud. I didn't see my bandmates in the restaurant as I passed through, but that didn't mean anything. Having made my way to the entrance, I stepped outside into the cool spring afternoon air. On the pavement stood a sandwich board inviting patrons to come to Salamanders for yummy desserts and lots of fun. There was a photo. To my shock and horror, the photo was the very one Phoenix had just taken of me. I looked like a cross between a Pekingese dog and a hairless cat with a crown of cream and a flaky pastry cape. My expression resembled Shelley Duvall with an axe smashing through her door. I supposed it might look like a fun place, worthy of a great laugh even, if you weren't the one in the photo who'd had it done to you. I had no idea what I could possibly have done to Phoenix to prompt him to be so awful. But then it wouldn't do to look like I was a person who took stuff too seriously. I remembered a co-worker I'd had in a restaurant when I was 16. A manager had come into the kitchen one day when we were running off our feet and stressed because it was so busy. This manager popped a balloon, surprising the crap out of the entire kitchen staff. We were startled as hell, but then we all laughed. 
all but this one fellow who got pissy and took the incident as a personal affront. The laugh had broken the tension, but he piled it back on. It wasn't the only time he insisted on assuming the role of victim, and the result was that people generally didn't respect him. I couldn't afford to develop a reputation like that. Fine, I could laugh. Wet, sticky, and still dripping with pastry and cream, I gripped the handle of my acoustic guitar case and headed for the bus. When it pulled up and the doors opened, I stepped onto the bottom step. The bus driver said, Nope, get off, you're too mucky. In shock, I backed off wordlessly. He pulled away and my body sagged beneath the unfairness of the whole wide world. I put my guitar down and rolled around on the grassy boulevard. The homeless dude watching me looked hungry, and I wished I could offer him some excess Napoleon, but I didn't think he'd take it the way I meant it. He looked nervous and staggered away, poor fellow. When the next bus came, I was wet and mucky, but not dripping. This driver let me on without a word. I vowed to drink a toast to her next time I had a beverage, which would likely be as soon as possible. I stood so as not to muck up the seats, and when I switched onto the train, I found a stray newspaper and spread it out so I could sit on it. I'm just that thoughtful. I arrived at the music store by a quarter to four. I was dry, but crusty and sticky. I like what you've done with your hair, Brian said. He sounded almost sincere. Ha, I said moodily. Very funny. His eyes widened. I mean it. It looks really good. You're crazy but I peeked into a mirrored sign on the wall. It didn't look half bad. Oh, I said. You're touchy today. What's up? I tried to explain how I'd taken on another part-time job and the boss was irksome, but then a customer needed his attention, so I didn't get to finish. I was kind of hoping I'd be able to hint that I'd like to take some time off, but no, I couldn't do that to him. My four o'clock changed from six o'clock because of a tournament game, lesson, Dominic, arrived and we secluded ourselves in my room. Things went well, except when he said, You smell like sour milk. Interlude, May 8th It was terrifying! Don't make me do it again! Phoenix pleaded. Rickenbacker stopped mid-pace, hands clasped behind his tailcoat, and squished his stockinged toes in the faux fur. He pivoted and planted his scrutiny on his friend. Had he just heard what he thought he heard? Please do repeat that. Phoenix dropped his head into the cradle of his arms. He was curled up in the armchair, one knee up by his shoulder. He looked like a grasshopper who had lost an argument with a brick wall. Yes, go ahead, Rickenbacker said, as if drawing a confession from a child, which is very close to what he was doing. I'm listening. <coughs> Phoenix whimpered from within his elbows. Rickenbacker took a couple of steps toward the cowering form and bent down, hands on his knees. Try again, out loud this time. Phoenix raised his head and a wail issued forth from his throat. I'm scared. He flung his arms wide within the confines of his curled-up leopard-print legs. It's so easy for you to stalk back and forth and be all excited about our progress and so forth, all pleased with yourself. You're not the one staring at the point of a knife, wondering when it's going to skewer you and hang you over a fire for the fat to drop and make the flames flare up, thereby bringing your exterior to an overzealous crisp. Rickenbacker straightened. Is that what this is about? 
My dear fellow, this is perfectly safe. Do you think the tournament would make us do anything that was actually life-threatening? Phoenix's glower forced Rickenbacker backwards to sink into the sofa on the other side of the room. When Phoenix spoke, it was barely above a whisper, and the intensity was life-threatening. What about the dandelions? Rickenbacker waved a hand. Oh, pish-tosh, the dandelions were never a real threat. Phoenix unfolded himself, and his feet landed on the floor with a thud that was dampened by the red shag and faux fur. "'Says you, the one of us who didn't have to face down a whole field of them, "'they were in bloom, and some of them had gone to seed!' "'His white-knuckled hands gripped the arms of the chair. "'All you had to do was run through the field to the other side and grab the goat. "'What was so difficult about that?' "'Rickenbacker couldn't believe his ears. "'Phoenix pouted. "'I might have gotten my trousers dirty!' A bad, bad feeling had crept into Rickenbacker's consciousness. What? Phoenix shrank under Rickenbacker's stare. And I don't like those seeds blowing around. What? They make me skittish. Rickenbacker pushed himself forward to sit on the edge of the cushiony couch. Do you mean to tell me we lost the tournament because of a few dandelions? Phoenix withered and whimpered. I felt my life was in danger. Rickenbacker widened his eyes to express his incredulity. Phoenix couldn't retreat any further into his chair. I want that title back, he whinged. Then you, my friend, have to do what is necessary. Phoenix nodded meekly. Rickenbacker slapped his palms on his lap. Let me hear no more of this. All right. Rickenbacker rose, and in the few strides it took him to get to the wine decanter on the mirrored desk, his ire had dwindled. He poured himself some of the purple froth and didn't offer any to Phoenix. The twit could get his own wine. "'That was a nice touch using the hose,' Rickenbacker said by way of showing forgiveness. Phoenix accepted the opening and perked up. He even giggled a little with a self-congratulatory tone— the look on her face was priceless. I thought we had won at that very moment. Any second she was about to come at me. He shuddered at the thought. You have set up the relationship perfectly. Rickenbacker dipped his finger in the creamy foam at the top of his cup. She's a very nice person. I really wish we could just be friends. Just then a figure appeared in the doorway. The MGC came in and sat down on the floor by the desk. Come to think of it. That she is such a nice person may work in our favor. Rickenbacker saw the danger of letting Phoenix become sentimental and insisted on keeping the discussion on track. I believe we earn bonus points for our choice of candidate, given the inherent challenges. And if you continue to push her, she's sure to break at just the right moment. If not before, early would be all right. I believe bonus points are awarded for that, too. He pointed at Phoenix. You just be sure to be in the right place at the right time. We don't want her using it on a table or something. Phoenix threw his head back and laughed, evidence that he was feeling more positive. Ha 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 ha! Have no fear! She hates me! Mateo scrunched his fingers in the faux fur rug. Phoenix instantly sobered. Though I still don't know why it has to be me and not you. If Rickenbacker hadn't been looking right at him, he would have rolled his eyes, but he wanted to show he was a compassionate fellow, so he held off. 
I told you, dear chap, my role set up from the start was of the kind one, the fatherly figure, if you like, the one she could come to if she needed to talk about the way she's being treated at work, for instance. It would be far too much to get her to turn on me so abruptly. Besides, and Rickenbacker knew well how to time his little bits of flattery, you are so well suited to the role you have taken on, I could never pull it off the way you are. You're, well, you're a genius if I ever met one. Phoenix shrugged and nodded ever so modestly. I do have a certain style, and hey, if it means I get to spray our other world partner with a hose, I have much to be thankful for. The MGC had fixed his gaze on the spot where the sofa met the carpet. Perhaps a crawling insect had caught his eye. Rickenbacker wondered what went through his magically generated mind when he wasn't playing music. "'I should think we would not employ the same tack again,' he suggested gently. Phoenix stared a duh at him. "'My personal favourite detail,' Rickenbacker poured himself more wine, "'is the scorific I applied.' The soundtrack of her life is how I think of it. You've heard it said, there is a song for everything? That is the scorific. Music to suit her every mood. Music to accompany her experience. Did you invent the spell? Rickenbacker struck a pose and raised his cup. Indeed, he bowed. Just a little something I've been working on. It was an idea I had, you know, back in the day, as it were. It had been percolating in my mind, and I've been tweaking it for the last few months. I had no idea I would be able to use it to such advantage in this tournament. How lucky! And it was a simple thing to apply, he half shrugged with extraordinary modesty. I gave it to our MGC to pass on to our OWP once we had her agreement. He simply shook her hand, and the spell was triggered. How do you generate its energy, though? You can't follow her around. "'True and very perceptive of you, my friend. "'It feeds off, and I think this is very clever indeed, "'her own stress and anxiety, "'which it is, of course, designed to increase.' "'You mean it causes stress and anxiety, "'which then give it energy to continue to do it?' "'Exactly.' "'Now was a good time to stroll about the room and look impressive. "'Rickenbacker did so.' "'I have a theory on how to create a perpetual motion machine using this very principle, "'but so far I haven't figured out how to manage it without the separate recipient-slash-source. "'A true perpetual motion machine would give off its own energy, "'which it would also feed off of, and would not require a living creature to feel the anxiety which would feed it. "'I am close to it and would like to acquire a—' "'But never mind.' "'He waved a hand and turned his attention back to Phoenix.' I do so wish I could follow her around, as you suggested, to see if it has the desired effect. Certainly not so that Rickenbacker could congratulate himself or celebrate his own success. Can we at least do a mood check? Phoenix said. Rickenbacker cocked his head to the side. Yes, good idea. He was feeling generous enough to give Phoenix credit for something. The mood check was a useful, if limited, tool similar to taking a person's temperature. "'I should be able to tune in fairly frequently and take a reading. "'It won't tell me any details about what is happening to her "'or why she is feeling a certain way, "'but it will identify her mood. "'It should give us a small hint of our progress.' "'Phoenix nodded. "'I have to say the scorific is a clever touch.' "'Rickenbacker bowed again, raised his cup in a toast, and drank. 
I have also unleashed a prankster on her, which I hid in the business card I handed to her when we met. It is a tournament-sanctioned spell which will last only for the duration of this tournament, and will take care of adding a few trifling salamandurian delights in her vicinity, some oddities, if you will, that will cause her some confusion, keep her questioning her soundness of mind. I cannot keep track of it any more than I can keep track of the scorific's music in her head— but I am certain we will witness the results. Just another little thing that I hope will add to her discomfort and edginess. Which is good for our purposes. Exactly. Phoenix squirmed. But I still don't completely like it. What will happen to me? Rickenbacker had no idea. For the sake of simplification, he brushed his friend's concern off as he lowered himself onto the couch. Oh, the implement will probably just disappear or something. Phoenix said... Alp, probably? Yes, yes, but consider how much work I have put into our team's effort. The prankster, the scorific, setting up the periodic reality scans, not to mention our MGC. Why, I even found our other world partner. It's only right you should take on your fair share, and with your role I believe we achieve balance. Phoenix grunted. He pointed to the MGC. And him? Rickenbacker raised his cup again. He, he paused for dramatic effect, he is everything I could have hoped for. He is a marvelous musician, and it's obvious our candidate loves being in the band as a result. The juxtaposition with the kitchen work gives us much to congratulate ourselves for. Don't you think it would have been better if she didn't like playing with the band quite so much? Maybe we would have won already. Rickenbacker shook his head with utter certainty. No, no, my friend. If she didn't like the band, she would simply quit and leave altogether. The music is what keeps her here. Won't she be surprised at the end of it all? Phoenix got up and paced the room, rubbing his hands, his face an illustration of eagerness, perfect for a picture dictionary. All we need to do is stay on track. Our candidate is primed, or at least she's getting there, so long as we make the deadline. And don't break any rules. And do not break any rules. We stand a very good chance, a very good chance indeed. You must make sure you're always nearby in those moments of tension, of course. Of course, Phoenix interjected with bravado, and that cup and title will be ours. We could not have planned it better. Griffin was a really good sport over the photo-taking hose-spraying affair. And Phoenix and Rickenbacker are pleased with their progress. Tune in next week when Griffin says, No more Elvis through those speakers! I have been thinking about doing this for a very long time, and I finally did it. I set up a page on coffee. That's K-O-F-I. So it's kind of like leaving my guitar case out on the ground in front of me while I sing. <laughs> so if you liked that chapter, pop on to coffee.com, click explore, and type in Krista Wallace is a writer, all one word. Also, the link is in this episode description. And once there, you can drop a toonie in my virtual guitar case if you feel like it. With many, many thanks for supporting me. Thank you so much to my family, to Matt, David and Heather, and Maggie. Cheers.
cheers to David and Sharon. Thanks, Phil Dirksen, for the guitar solo. And thanks so much to you. Now, go be fantastic.